You are this country's first openly gay prime minister. How big a deal is this for you personally? Brexit process. U.S. investment bank Lehman Brothers collapsed. I said this was a once in a generation a vote. financial crisis. But I believe we have voted today for the next generation. Don't be rude. Ireland has spoken with a clear, strong voice. I think I should stop now and start again because I don't think you this is a good news. start of the debate. Welcome to the Dublin Law and Politics Review podcast, in which we discuss current political events. My name is Annalika, and with me today is Hazred, a PhD candidate at the Irish Centre for Human Rights with a scholarship provided by Hardiman, with whom I'll be discussing the concept of honour in everyday life of Kurdish women. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe or find us on social media via at DublinLPR or on our website DublinLPR.ie. This podcast will furthermore be aired on Swatch Radio Navi Mumbai and Galway's Flirt of M. So welcome, Hazret. Thank you very much, Anne, for this invitation. It's lovely to have you here. You're talking about this concept of honor. Could you explain a bit more what it is? Uh, thank you. Yes, of course I can. So what my research actually is engaged with is the concept of namus, which you wouldn't be very familiar with at first, because in English we know namus through honor. And the way we usually know about honor is through the media or human rights discourse. We've heard about honor killings or honor-related violence, and that's how we become familiar with, with honor. My research is focused on not the honor killing, but what this honor entails, what the honor in the everyday entails. And so not the extreme manifestation of honor, which is an act of violence, but the everyday that functions outside of this. So what kind of everyday functions should I imagine with this concept of honor or namus? Namus, which I call it. So for namus is something that is really integral and important for most moral subjects uh, that live in Kurdish culture. Not everyone, but for most people, it's really fundamental. It is what makes them human and brings them into being. So what does it mean for a man or a woman to have namus, to live with namus? And for a woman, it means that they adopt upon their own bodies a number of practices in, in accordance with a number of norms, such as chastity, modesty, shyness. It means that they adopt an, a way of being which, let's say, is modest in dressing, which is where they lower their gaze when they walk. Um, so this way of being is, is, a, is a moral way of being. It's a moral agency, a moral form of subjectivity that one adopts. But it sounds very, you, you speak about this modesty and lowering your gaze, that sounds very female unfriendly. That's the portrayal that's been very much in human rights. So the human rights discourse have portrayed honor very much as a limiting female empowerment, as limiting female autonomy, as limiting female freedom. What I'm arguing is that throughout my research and the interviews with the participant is that it's not only limiting, but it's actually also enabling. And this is a bit about what, what we can understand through is the paradox of agency that Judith Butler talks about very much, right? She talks about how that as humans, as human, we have agency through being part of a power structure which works, which has power over us. But also in that, we have power in it. Um, so although that we are dominated in it, we are also enabled through it. And the way that you are enabled through honor is that it functions as a site of 
recognition, it functions as a site of uh, agency, it functions to create a number of relationships between people uh, in its context. So what kind of relationships does this concept of NAMUS enable? What kind of relationship does concept of NAMUS enable? What it enables, it's not what kind of relationship, it's how it disciplines those relationships, it's how it regulates those relationships. So it regulates how you behave towards your family, it regulates how you behave towards strangers. It ensures that there is a, a particular distance between you and as a woman, uh, it would be a distance between you and men that are not your family members. So it, in that way, it ensures, in the word of these women, very often not adopting these practices of Namus will um, make them feel protected. So if I understand you correctly, it disciplines the situation. Does that imply that there are certain obligations as well for men on how they can behave towards women who are not their family members? Yes, absolutely. So for men, Namus is very much about responsibility and uh, to act, to also uh, act with respect towards women that are uh, not their own family members. So like the very interesting element of this, I think, is to look at Namus as, as obviously limiting uh, a number of forms of being, but in that limitation also enabling other forms of being. And the inspiration I've got through looking at Namus differently than human rights discourse do is to uh, use the word, uh, work of um, the anthropologist Sabah Mahmoud, who, who I think was brilliant in her analysis of the piety movement in Egypt. And so she's not denying that these women live in what we call so-called patriarchal settings, but she's kind of saying that that might very well be the case. But what, what does that do for these women? What is it that they achieve by uh, adopting a number of practices that the social authority of these forms of living require? So the question I'm seeking to understand and answer is also uh, linked to what is the mode of reasoning that these women living in cultures of honor, all namus, uh, are telling themselves? Like, what are the, what are the truth claims that they are using to convince themselves of this way of life? If I may interrupt you a little bit, because you were talking yeah. about research done in Egypt. Yeah. So from that, I understand that the concept of namus is not specific to Kurdish women. Uh, so in, in Mahmoud's, yeah, Mahmoud's work was on the pious women. Um, um, and, and, and it's not a similar research that I'm doing, but I'm just using the methodology to understand how uh, women in constrained situation, in so-called patriarchal situation, can still have agency and can still have freedom. So essentially, it's, uh, it's for us to reconceptualize what freedom and agency means and move away from the human rights discourse understanding of a liberal subject, which is autonomous, which, is, um, which can just be external from the norms that are imposed upon them, who can mold their own lives with their own free will. That is not the subject of, of Mahmoud's or Butler's um, work. They operate with a subject that's much more entangled, a subject that is both constrained and enabled through a set of social orders. So this concept of namus, is it specific to patriarchal societies or can we find it in other societies as well? Well, I think there's a, there's a danger in dividing the world in patriarchal versus non-patriarchal societies because I think we live even here in a patriarchal society. Uh, and to deny that would be, I think, 
not accurate. So we need to be careful in dividing the world in patriarchal versus non-patriarchal societies. Now, most specific to, um, I, I don't want to generalize. So in my research, I've only looked at Kurds to find out what are the specificities around Namus for Kurdish communities. The concern with propriety and chastity is not unique to Kurdish communities. We see that in many other places. And we see that also in the West in a, through the different manifestation. But we see a concern with propriety of what it means to be a woman or what it means to outlive one's sexuality. Even within human rights discourse, the sexual subject really has a central role. So yeah, sexuality means something else. When you look at it from a liberal paradigm, it means to outlive your sexuality, right? Like you need to be free as much as possible. So the, but what does it mean if you don't want that? What does it mean as a subject of Namus? You don't, they don't want to outlive their sexuality that way. What does it mean when they just want the opposite, to not have free sexuality, to actually not to explore sexuality in the same way? Um, can we then accommodate those forms of living? Can we understand those forms of living? And can we understand them without necessarily saying that they live under false consciousness? Now, I understand that it's not just a black and white patriarch, yeah. non-patriarch, but what I was actually aiming at in Turkey, where you have a lot of Kurdish people living, you also have, I believe, a few tribes that are, and a few ethnic groups that are living in matriarchal societies. Do we see the same or a similar concept of namas? Um, it was interesting during uh, my ethnographic work that Namus changed from uh, very, in, even within the same city, like I did field work in, in North Kurdistan, um, which would be considered within the territories of Turkey. I did it in West Turkey to look at how displaced Kurds were living. And I also did interviews with the Kurdish diaspora in Denmark. And it was interesting to see that even within the same city, Namus varied from family to family, Namus varied depending on whether people had, um, were politically engaged. And uh, when, when people were politically engaged, they didn't understand Namus only to be a set of, a set of norms connected to how you need to be as a person or how it, needs, how it relates to relationships, but very much also related to the concept of the homeland. So what kind of differences did you find that were interesting to you? I think the, the, the biggest difference I found, uh, or the, the, maybe the, the, the biggest aha moment I had was that having been trained as a human rights scholar and, and studied human rights and, um, for many years, I, I thought that when I go to the field, I'm going to find exactly what the human rights document is saying, right? I'm going to find that this is oppressive, this is patriarchal, this is something to do with Muslim communities and the familial and all these uh, preconceived judgments. I thought this is what I'm going to find when I go. And it wasn't. And it was really interesting to see that for many of these women, this way of life was not negative. This way of life provided them with recognition and agency. It was a marker of their respectability within their own context. And it was not, it was not something they wanted to throw away or throw out to replace it with something else. So I would often ask them provocatively, like being like, you know, in Europe, this is how we talk about your way of life. Um, you know, the way we look at uh, that honor on Namus is like this in Europe. And, and I was like, do you not, would you not like a European life instead? And, and many of the women would be like, no, we don't. Like, why, how could you even ask us that question? 
And I think that was an interesting moment for me because that was so different than what I had been told in the, um, in, in the reports and books that I had been, in, been writing. And that's why I really think the work of Judith Butler on gender performativity is really interesting. And also the work on Sabah Mahmoud on the piety movement really have provided me with the tools to understand that, um, that honor is both enabling as well as limiting. And in the human rights discourse, we keep talking about how it limits women, but we forget to see that it also can be very enabling for these very women as well. So you speak a lot about this, uh, this sense of sexuality uh, and the relationship with Namus and that it enables women to generate relationships and keep their respect and how to, to show or limit their, their sexuality. Now, how does this relate to, for example, other human rights, such as civil political rights? Well, I think just before moving on to that, I think it's important that I just re restate that that Namus is very much beyond sexuality as well. It has been reduced in the English speaking world to a matter of sexuality and uh, often been portrayed, I think, uh, very injuriously as a fetish with virginity. But I think it's important we understand that it's beyond sexuality, that it's very much to do how we, how we, how we engage with one another. And it's, it's very much, I would say, an, an ontology. It's a way through which you come into being. And that, in how it relates to other human rights, it's an interesting question. But I guess my problem with that would be, why do we seek to center human rights all the time? You know, why do we seek to make human rights or make Namus fit one another? Why, why are we looking for a synthesis here and uh, how they relate to one another? I think what I've been really interested in in the, in the research is how does these women, do they have a grammar of human rights? Do they relate to human rights in some sense? And for me, it's important as a human rights and critical scholar that human rights are used for these women when they want to, to challenge claims of what what is a human or to challenge rights when they want to, but that human rights is not imposed upon them. That I understand. But for example, would NAMUS prevent, say, the right for women to vote? No, no, it wouldn't. But NAMUS is not, not this, is, this is where I think we need to understand that NAMUS is not, is not codified law, although it does function in some way has very similar similar way because it does regulate society and you, you could say that it's, it's very close to the Greek concept of normus so it's like the founding law uh, law of, of society but it does not it does not prevent civil and political rights in that sense what it does is that it it creates a, a distinction between the private and the public sphere and it, it creates a distinction between how people relate to each other in those different spheres could you elaborate a bit more? It's a broad concept, as I understand it, from what you're saying. Does this, for example, apply between women as well? How women who are strangers, let's say, how they would approach each other and how they would talk to one another? Yeah, yeah, it does. Like, um, but this, again, varies from, from context to context, how you conduct yourself, how you, how, you, how you behave. And the way you are with your friends or with your family is not usually how you would be with strangers. So these, these code of conducts are very particular to different neighborhoods, maybe, or even different families, and also are different depending on whether you are deeply religious or not, uh, or whether you are deeply political or not. But... I, I think I need to just emphasize a bit that 
what is entailed in Namos is that kind of uh, sets up an ideal of a woman. Let's say that it sets up an ideal of a woman. And that ideal, let's say a woman that is pious, a woman that is modest, a woman that is chastised, um, is not, is, it's something that other women then, these Kurdish women, they work upon themselves. They adopt a number of practices. They, they, they use technologies of the self to live up, to be this ideal, you know? So they, they, they shape their desires through a number of external uh, practices. So let me explain this a bit more. They might be wearing, let's say, long skirts, maybe not a top, but maybe a long-sleeved shirt, because that for them might be a sign of modesty. But that modesty is not just not just expressed through one's dressing, uh, one's one's clothing, but that clothing also shapes how you feel on the inside. But it's not only through the dress, it's also through forms of speaking, forms of walking, forms of looking. So Namus is not just about being chastised and not uh, and, and not having, let's say, uh, intercourse or a sexual relationship until you get married. It's beyond that. It's, it's, it's your whole form of, uh, of being uh, as a human being. And we've spoken a lot about the, the women and the, the ideal under Namus for women. Yeah. What would be the ideal man? The ideal man is, is a man that, that looks after his family, that, is, that takes responsibility. So what I thought was really interesting often asking men about what it entailed to be a good man was that they kept emphasizing this, that they would not let their family members be in difficult situations. If they did that, then they were not namus. So a woman that puts herself in danger essentially uh, would be considered for many men to be a man's responsibility. He shouldn't have put her in that situation. Okay, could you elaborate a bit more on that? So what would classify as, say, a dangerous situation? Well, for, uh, for many of these, for some of these more, for some of these people, it would be, um, let's say, it could be that woman has to take the bus at three o'clock at night because she has late, uh, late hours uh, shifts because she works as a nurse and she's off five o'clock in the morning, as an example and needs to take the train. That is to put her in a dangerous situation. If she is there, uh, a man hasn't done her, his responsibility well enough. He should provide uh, her a way of uh, reaching home in safety. So instead he should maybe drive her home or he should uh, make sure that somebody accompanies her home. So for men, Namus is very much to do with protection and protecting their family members and providing for them. And how does Namus or how do these people look upon, say, domestic situations? Uh, I think there's a, a general idea and maybe a misidea that in a situation where a woman is considered to be um, th this ancient idea of piety, uh, that men are in charge of women. Would Namus agree with this idea or uh, how would they, for example, regulate domestic life? Would a man be allowed to hit his wife? I think there's a few problems with that question because we, by even asking that question, we reproduce the idea of women as objects. And I would be very careful with that because if we talk with these women, and I think emphasis has to be about how these women see themselves and they don't see themselves as objects. 
of Edmund's mercy. And especially when we talk about Namus, or if we call it honor, we, uh, we, do, we do tend to portray the Muslim man, particularly, although this happens beyond the Muslim world, we reduce it to Muslimness as a dangerous bound man that, um, that can't control his anger, that, uh, that treats women in a particular way. And I, I'm, I'm very careful with that. I, um, I, think the, I don't think we should do that. But I'll try to answer your question, how does Namus regulate domestic life? It does create very clear lines of uh, responsibility. And it is, again, very, very different because of course, Namus is caught up in, 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 in hegemonic masculinity and, and regulates forms of femininity and becomes a standard for forms of femininity and masculinity both together. But to say that Namus justify violence is to misunderstand what Namus is about. Namus is a relationship of self to self. It's about how you adopt a number of practices to discipline your own body, your own way of being. And it does not allow for other peoples to discipline you in that way. Namus is a social authority, which many people think it comes from traditions, from their forefathers. And people try to live up to this social authority to how they discipline themselves. But that disciplining oneself, they do because there's an ideal. Like, it's, you have to think about it. We all engage in what Foucault calls the technology of the self and the ways of disciplining ourselves. And if we don't do it, we have institutions to do it on us. But that disciplining is not, it, it, it is one that's limiting, but it's not, it's not one that, like, I, 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 don't, I don't think I can answer it differently, but it does not, um, Namus is not a way of, of justifying violence. But what I think what you're trying to ask about is honor killings, actually. <laughs> I think you're trying maybe to no, ask... Not, not so much, because okay. uh, you mentioned in the beginning honor killings is not part yeah. of the research. No, but I would like to say a few things about it, because I think there's so much emphasis about it, you know, like about... Like and 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 we we tend to want to uh, want to engage with oh well then there's uh, the, the honor is different because eventually it can lead to violence and a killing, and and this extreme manifestation of honor has been uh, one that's emphasized a lot. And doing my fieldwork in in North Kurdistan, I was talking to a few fem female agencies that were helping women. And they were all under the impression that we see very few honor killings today compared to what it was 20 years ago. So thank God that is going in the right direction. And I think it's important that we condemn this violence, but it's just how we condemn it. And to reduce honor to that extreme manifestation of violence, I think one needs to be careful of. And one needs to be careful of not saying that there's a storyline here of how the killing happens and who the perpetrators are and who the victim are as well. Because in the everyday, honor functions outside of this violence. It functions between couples and in families without anyone being murdered, you know, and that happens most of the time. So that's also part of the story. So my research wants to kind of give a broader image of the story as well and understand maybe the situation that we don't focus so much on the, the everyday and what it means for these women. So taking a step back from the extreme, because honor yeah. killings are, of course, very extreme and an extreme manifestation of any concept the moment killing is involved it's extreme and it's wrong yeah but if we take a step back so you told you spoke about this ideal that men and women live up to 
Now, let's take the situation where indeed a man uh, wrongly allows his wife or sister to travel home at four o'clock at night on her own. How would Namus deal with that? What, what kind of consequences would such a man face? Well, the consequences are interesting because often I was, I was also under the impression that, oh, well, there's not really any consequences for men either, I would ask my participants. And they would be like, oh, yeah, there is, actually. There's a loss of social value uh, in the eyes of others as well as a man. And, and this is where I thought it was interesting. A man that was cheating on his wife, suddenly his family would stop maybe greeting him or saying, oh, when they met him on the street or even welcoming him to his house, um, for a man that put his uh, woman in those situations, he would be uh, excluded uh, from, his, from his society. Um, so if we understand Namus as a, as a side of recognition, then a man that misbehaves, or a man that can't discipline himself, a man that can't adopt a number of practices upon himself, um, is a man that would also be excluded and misrecognized by his society. And what kind of consequences would women face? Well, I think that really depends on, 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 again, on the context that women are in. But, and the extreme consequence we, uh, we, we know through uh, sensationalist media, uh, and it's really severe and, and horrible. So in no way would I want my research to be uh, seen as a justification for something that horrible. But everyday consequence would be not be different than, than a that the consequences men suffer, uh, which is a loss of face and uh, a loss of recognition and, and social value. And one has to understand that recognition is essential to who we are as humans. And we, we get them from different places and maybe through, um, like human rights is a form of recognition, you know, uh, to be a, a subject of human rights is a side of recognition as well. And uh, then there are also excluded subjects of human rights uh, who are not recognized as full humans. And if one is born with numbers and sustains numbers, one is a recognized subject within numbers. And how long would this social exclusion continue for? So say a man cheating on his wife, you explained, his, his family would shun him. What would it take for this man to become get back in this social context? I think like I think these everyday examples really you can't generalize around them but a man in this example the man he stopped the, the, this wife was telling me his wife was telling me that he stopped cheating on her and then slowly she accepted him and then the rest of society and his, his family started talking to him again so but that was one example it, and I think it's really important and I think that's one of the legacy also for court that we should maybe focus more on is that we look at the particular, we look at the local, we look at the, these very few examples in the everyday to see how does it work. Unfortunately, in human rights discourse, we like to generalize it, we like to universalize it, we like to make it, we, might, we like to put it into a category, and this is this, is this categorization, is this umbrella term of honor that's make, make us lose sight of the particular, the local, or what happens in, the, in, the, in each incident, and what does it mean for those people that are living with it? It sounds very, very interesting. Unfortunately, we are running out of time. It also sounds, though Namus is perhaps particular to certain region in this world, it, it, it sounds very universal. In, in other societies, 
call them liberal, call them Western, call them whatever you like, a man cheating on his wife would certainly get response from his friends and family as well in a negative sense. Is Namus very different, fundamentally different from social values that are perhaps shared throughout the world? I think, I think we just have to remember that when I ask these people, what does Namus mean? They're like, it means everything. It's the most important. Like, this is a concept that none of them have really thought about, really. They don't even know where they've learned it, but they all think it's super important, right? Most of my participants, if I ask them, where did they hear about it the first time? The co-participants or co-writers of this research, um, they, they, would, they would say, oh, we, we, just, we just know what it is. And it's like, it's no different than when we, uh, when somebody, let's say, asked me, what does it mean to be a woman? When did you learn what it was to be a woman? Like, we just know what it is as well, you know? So I think the, un- the, the theory of performativity help us understand elements of, of namus and also understand how it's integral to who they are as moral agents and that it's what brings them into being and what makes them human. Now, this is not written in stone, does it? Do, did your research find or does it develop over time as well, adapt to changing circumstances? Yeah, so um, I'm actually just um, doing my, uh, finishing off my interview transcriptions at the moment and coding them. But it's interesting, I think, how uh, the relationship to Namus changes from whether one is in the homeland in North Kurdistan or whether one is internally displaced or in the Danish diaspora and what happens across border when Namus crosses border and how it changes. Like one of the things that I was uh, quite interested in was to find out whether it strengthens when it um, crosses borders, or whether it changes a bit of, whether the, the disciplining of oneself changes. Uh, there's definitely changes to be seen, and there's definitely an attachment to Namus that is different in those three different sites. Interesting, yeah. That, that is very interesting. Yeah. So that was very interesting. Thank you so much for talking to me, and thank you all for listening to the Dublin Law and Politics Review podcast on Namus. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe or follow us on social media via at DublinLPR. Comments, questions and suggestions are very welcome via contact at DublinLPR.ie. This was Annelie Kamoy and I wish you a very pleasant day. Thank you very much.